Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Sign of Jonah. Okay, imagine the scene. The Pharisees have just demanded that Jesus give them a sign that he has indeed come from God and is the Messiah. If this was a music score, it would have us on the edge of our seats awaiting Jesus' response. His response is an extremely curious one. He says, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Well, okay, what is the sign of Jonah? This message unfolds just how profound of a sign that is. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. It's funny, if I were to ask you, what is the sign of Jonah? You know, a lot of you actually would have an answer. Even though it's sort of a tricky question. What is the sign of Jonah? Jesus declared that he will give no other sign but the sign of Jonah to this generation. What is that? What is the sign of Jonah? Well, this is an extremely fascinating, powerful message. The sign of Jonah. You know that if you are harmed, if you are hurt, if you are falsely accused, if you are undermined, if there's a a dagger in your back, human forgiveness will maybe pull the dagger out, set it down, and choose to walk away. However, there ends up being a blankness or a hardness of heart towards that person. Oh, you don't, you know, want to harm them and to seek revenge. However, you also don't want to seek a big hug. There is a blankness, a deadness of soul towards that person. We could call that human forgiveness. Is human forgiveness good? Well, it's better than resentment and bitterness. It's better than hatred. You see, it's actually quite a step forward. Jonah struggled with something. Jonah, his people, had been devastated by a nation known as the Assyrians. The amount of harm that was brought to him and his people was so extreme, it was more than just a dagger in the back. It would be like as a parent seeing a dagger in the back of your child, and then someone coming to you and saying, hey, forgive. Aren't you, isn't that what Christians do? It's like, yeah, but that's my child. This is an entire nation that has been harmed because of a nation known as Assyria. And so most of us don't fully understand what Jonah is going through when God comes to him and says, I want you to go to Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians. And I want you to tell them this message. So we don't fully understand, I think, and grasp the depth of what's going on in Jonah. And that's why a message like this can at least help. It can move us in the direction of understanding not just Jonah, because Jonah's a type. It's a Christophany. It's a picture in the Old Testament that forecasts something in the New. It's telling of a Messiah. It's telling of a work of grace. It's telling of a mercy of God. But out of Jonah, there was no mercy. The mercy in this story doesn't come from Jonah. And that's what's interesting about the story. It's like Jonah is a picture. It's a picture of Christ in a strange way, but out of him comes no mercy. He wants these Assyrians dead. It's, it's, it's a fascinating story. So let's, let's begin to dig into it. To, to actually understand Jonah, I need to introduce you to a character. His name is Amitai. Most of us have never heard of this guy. And it's because he's mentioned like twice, and it's not because he's ever discussed. It's that he is the father of someone that's very important in this story. He's the father of Jonah, and he was a prophet. Isn't that an interesting thought to think that Jonah came from a prophet? Yeah. He's one of the sons of the prophets. And so Amate is a prophet. 
And you know where he happens to be from? Galilee. Does that ring a bell for you? Does the concept of Galilee strike a thought within you? That Amatei is the prophet from Galilee. Where do you think Jonah's from then? Uh-huh, he's from Galilee. Jonah is a prophet from Galilee. So I figured I'd just sort of introduce you to Amatei, which will then help you understand Jonah. And once you understand Jonah, you actually begin to understand something about where Jonah's from and what flows out of that place. So Amatei, the prophet from Galilee. You know what his name means? The truth. Uh-huh. Uh, it means the truth, that which can be trusted, that which is faithful and deserving of confidence. It's truth. Now, at Ellerslie, we've talked about fact, faith, and experience. And fact, when we talk about it, like two plus two equals four, that's fact, but it's also truth. It is that which is without lie, that which can be completely relied upon, that which is factual, that which is without lie, exaggeration, there's clearness to it, and you can build your life around it. Well, that's Amate. That's what his name means. It means the truth, that which is without exaggeration, that which is without lie. So Amate would have lived in the times of Elijah and Elisha. Could you imagine being a prophet in the times of Elijah? Do you guys remember the times of Elijah? Now, you have to have some biblical framework for this. But do you remember Elijah's statement? I'm the only prophet left. Ahab and Jezebel have killed them all off. So how would you like to be a prophet in the time of Elijah and Elisha? So when was Jonah? He would have been a young little guy. At the very time when all the prophets were being killed, well, guess who that may have included? It may have included his dad, the truth in a generation. And so we have Amate, who would have lived in the times of Elijah and Elisha, witnessed all the wickedness of Ahab. Okay, when I say Ahab, it's okay to boo. Ahab. Uh, he deserves a boo. He would have also witnessed the destruction of the prophets. So he would have been a little wee guy at the time when all the prophets were being devastated. By who? Well, Ahab and Jezebel. What did he also witness? He also witnessed the horrible brutality of the Assyrians. This guy grew up in a very harsh age and generation. It was a very, very difficult time to be alive, and God had his finger on this little guy. God was saying, no, I have a purpose for you. His purpose is quite extraordinary. It really is. So I'm going to tell a story, and I'm going to introduce you to some players in this story. Amate, the truth. And I'm going to liken the truth to the work of Jesus Christ. I know it sounds strange. There's a character that you haven't even met, Amate, and I'm going to liken him to Jesus Christ. Because wouldn't I liken Jonah to Jesus Christ? Well, I'm going to liken Jonah to something a little different. Jonah, his name actually means dove. And yet the word is a really hard one to work with because it also means wine or effervescence, that which sort of bursts forth like wine in a container. And so dove and wine, which don't seem to exactly fit together. And, but dove, well, who's dove and who is the wine of, the, of, of grace? It's the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to call Jonah in this the work of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter, what does he have to do with anything? Well, how did he get in our story? Well, just wait. I'll explain it in just a second. So Peter's name is The Rock, and we're going to call this the work of the church of Jesus Christ. So what you see is this is everything to us. This is how we function here. We need the Amate, and if without the Jonah, we cannot be a rock. And we are called to be a rock in this generation, not because we are the rock, but we have found our home in the rock. And as a result, we become immovable in our faith, in what we stand for, we are strong and able to help a dying world that has lost its seed. 
Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai. Just in case you didn't believe me, that's what it says. Now listen to this. This is going to surprise you. In the Old Testament, we have one Jonah. You know, in the New Testament, we have mention of one Jonah. Well, I should say two. It refers back to the Jonah of the Old Testament. Then it mentions one other Jonah. We know nothing about him except where he, we know where he comes from. He's from Galilee. Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah. Well, isn't that strange? Guess who happens to be the son of Jonah? Peter. The apostle Peter's dad is named Jonah. And where did Peter come from? I don't know if you guys know that. Where was he fishing? He was in, he was in Galilee. Peter's from Galilee. Where was Jonah from? Galilee. Where's Amitai from? Galilee. Where's Jesus from? Well, he's from Nazareth, which is Galilee. So, the lineage of the church, I'll give it to you really quick. Amate, the truth comes. You hear it. The truth has come and it has given up its life. It has declared the victory on that cross. What was needed to be established has been established. What needed to be atoned for was atoned for. What needed to be redeemed has been redeemed. The dove, how did you even hear about this message? How did you receive this grace? The Holy Spirit has brought it to us. Though it happened 2,000 years ago, you know about it today because a messenger has been sent. A dove with a little twig in its mouth has come and dropped off life to you. It has brought something to you that you may live. And so the wine of Christ's blood has been poured out and has been brought to you. So Amate and then Yona, and then Shimon. You know who that is? That's Simon. So the given name of who we know as the one we know as Peter, is Simon. And in the Old Testament, that would be Simeon. But in the New Testament, we understand it as Shimon, which means to hear with acceptance. Isn't this, this is an incredible thing. The truth comes. The truth has won the victory. And then the Spirit of God brings it to us. And Simon hears it with acceptance. He hears the truth and receives it. This is such an important aspect of who Simon even is. When you study in the New Testament, he's the one that sees it and believes it. And yet he needs to be made a little more firm. And so what, is it, what happens when you hear with acceptance? You become Petros, rock-like, hard and unyielding, immovable, and strong. So I'm just giving you sort of the lineage of how the church forms. The truth has been made manifest, and the dove has revealed it unto our hearts. We have received it with joy and heard it with acceptance. This receptivity to the clear word of God has caused us to become rock-like, hard and unyielding towards sin, immovable and strong in faith. Gath Heifer. It's sort of an awkward and ugly place, but that's the name of a location, a town in Galilee, uh, and that's where Jonah's from. It's a town of Lower Galilee, a few miles from Nazareth. Jonah, the son of Amate, the prophet, which was of Gath Heifer. Gath Heifer means the place from which truth flows. Isn't that interesting? The place from which truth flows. You know what it means, actually, very specifically? It means a wine press on a hill. So I want you to think of Calvary. Where is the place from which truth flows? Where is the place from which the Spirit of God has been given to us, the living water? Remember what flowed out of Jesus' side? It was a river. And what was that river, what did it consist of? It was a blend of two things, water and blood. Blood to a Hebrew is life. And so this was an intermingled living water. And this living water flowed from his belly. Jesus says, anyone who believes on me out of their belly will flow rivers of living water. But this is on a high hill known as Calvary. And so Gath Heifer in Galilee is the wine press on the hill where the grapes are smashed and the blood of the grape, the wine, gushes forth. And it's on a hill? 
What an interesting location that is. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. This is what would be called a messianic prophecy of where Jesus' ministry will start, where the Messiah's ministry will begin. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. So, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. What, what, what came? What, what was the light? Well, this is a messianic prophecy about Jesus Christ. And they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Galilee, it means to flow, to roll, to tumble forth, the opening of the door, the turning on the hinges, the opening of the floodwaters. So remember Gath Heifer, it's like the wine press on the hill. And then we have Galilee, which is like a door turning on its hinges. So I'm calling it the gate to the floodwaters, the opening of the gateway of grace. And what's interesting is even though it was Jews that filled Galilee, and they were, by the way, a very despised form of Jew. They had a special little uh, way that they spoke. It had more of a guttural sound, and it was, it was just sort of lesser. And the ones you sort of want to distance from are from Galilee. And so when Jesus came from Nazareth, that's like the armpits of Israel. And it's like, oh, he's from Galilee? Woo! It's not a positive statement. And so it's Galilee of the Gentiles. Well, the Gentiles are dogs. I mean, that's the, that's the refuse. We don't have anything to do with them. And so it's actually a very purposeful statement, the Galilee of the, the Gentiles. Isn't it interesting that the very place from which this prophet will arise to actually bring the message of God unto the Gentiles is in the place called Galilee of the Gentiles. John 7. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a seven-day feast, but they have an eighth day to it. And the eighth day is a very significant day where they have a very specific ceremony where they actually pour wine and water into a certain trough, and it mingles together. It's very similar to the river of life that flows out of Jesus' side. And so Jesus says, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. He actually says that here at the Feast of Tabernacles when they're actually doing this very ceremony. But this he spoke of the spirit which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So this river, that which flowed out of his side, that which flows out of our side, is actually likened to the Holy Spirit. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Well, that's an interesting question. Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David? David's from Bethlehem. And isn't he supposed to be born in Bethlehem? If you're born in Bethlehem, you're not raised in Galilee. Simple principle. In Israel, you don't just hop from one town to the next. If the Messiah is to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, then he can't come from Galilee. Can he? That Christ cometh of the seed of David and is out of the town of Bethlehem where David was. So there was a division among the people because of him. And by the way, for those of you that don't know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, though his parents were from Nazareth in Galilee. And there was a census called, a tax on the people of Israel, and they were called to return to the town of their fathers, which for Joseph happened to be David, and his hometown and his birthplace was Bethlehem. And so right at the very point when Mary is nine months pregnant, they are called to go, and she is great with child, and yep, 
that's where he was born. He was born in Bethlehem, and yet he came forth out of Galilee. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto him, Why have you not brought him? The officer said, Never spake man, never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he does? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Ooh, that's a, that's a pretty harsh statement. Are you also from the armpit? Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be a positive statement. Are you all, are, art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. Are you sure about that, O Pharisees who think you know the law? You know where Jonah came from? He came from Galilee. And every man went unto his own house. The story of Jonah. Now, instead of just reading you the four chapters of Jonah, I'm going to give you sort of a cursory overview, and I'll give you some of the key passages in it. But it's actually a rather odd story. I'm just going to wear it on my sleeve here. It's a very odd story. And what's extra odd about it is the writing is attributed to Jonah, that Jonah actually wrote this story too. He wasn't just the main character in it, but that he wrote it, which is extra weird because he doesn't look too good in the story. And so if you're going to write a story about yourself, you're going to sort of want to put a little spin on how the story works and even how it turns out. But in the very end, Jonah still is resolute in his position. He's unbending. God is merciful, and he is not. What a strange ending. What a strange ending to the work of the Israelites. They actually do not have that which it takes to reach the Gentiles. Only God does. The story of Jonah Key number one, God builds the nation of Israel. Who built Israel? Was it built by the Jews? No, it was built by God. God constructed a nation. He's the one that set apart Abraham. He's the one that blessed it. He's the one that built this entire prophetic culture, this culture that spoke of one to come. Everything in their laws, everything in their traditions, everything in their ceremonies, everything in their sacrifices, everything in their tabernacle and then their temple, everything spoke of one to come. Who built it? God did. Why did he build it? God builds the nation of Israel, a special heaven-built human vehicle. God is for some reason interested in building a human vehicle through which to reveal his truth. Through which to carry his grace unto the Gentiles. You see, God builds the Israelites not just so that he can make them fat and happy, but so that he can reveal himself to the nations and reach the Gentiles. Isn't that a fascinating statement? That goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. God is going to bless Israel so that they can become a blessing. So let's go through that really quick. Genesis 12. And I will make of thee a great nation. He's speaking to Abraham. And I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Well, to who? Uh-huh, to everyone else. Seeing that Abraham sh- shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Just a principle. In the Abrahamic covenant, God is going to bless. And he is going to establish a nation, a great people. That through this great people, all the nations of this earth can be blessed. That's how it starts. What went wrong in Israel? 
Where did they finally come to the conclusion that God could care less? He wants to cut off and bring judgment on everyone else outside of Israel. Something was lost in translation. Key number two, the word of God, who we know in the New Testament is Jesus Christ. So the word of God, or Jesus Christ, the truth, speaks unto this special heaven-built vehicle. So I'm going to liken the, uh, Jonah to the Jews, the nation that is built. God has raised up a prophet out of Galilee for such a time as this. And so who comes to him? Well, the truth does. The word of God comes unto Jonah. That's what it says. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, it's like, uh, now you've been built for this, right, Jonah? You know what to do. So the word of God comes unto him. Key number three, the word of God sends forth its dove, its wine of mercy. So the word of God, who's he chosen? He's chosen a dove. He's chosen the wine of, the, of mercy, the Holy Spirit, to call the most vile Gentiles unto repentance. This is just his way. However, when you look at the story, it's very interesting. God does reach Nineveh. God's message reaches Nineveh. God's mercy reaches Nineveh. Jonah's not too happy the entire time. The Jews will be used. The people of Israel will come into agreement with God's agenda. However, they're kicking and screaming the whole time. They actually don't want the Gentiles to come in. It's the funniest thing. God wants the Gentiles. And God will use Israel to gain us. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. What's the issue here? Why is Jonah so hardened in this situation? Well, like I said, if someone came up to you and harmed your child, you would be not necessarily inclined to help them. And so if God says, yeah, here's $100, could you bring it to the person that just harmed your child and help them out of a tough situation? No. I'm not about to give them any help, any assistance. You see, Jonah knows something about God and that he's a God of mercy. It's funny how he knows that. And he's afraid that God is going to extend that mercy to his arch nemesis, the Assyrians. See, it's not just Jonah's arch nemesis. It's the people of Israel. They hate the Assyrians. And if we have a message at LSD called Overcoming Sin. It's online, so you guys can all read it. But it goes through the history of the Assyrians. For a hundred years, they held the known world under their thumb. They, their king was called the King of Kings. They were a nation built for war and bloodthirst. They were a complete nation ruled and overcome by fleshly indulgence. And they had no mercy. They come in, and if they want something, they'll just kill everyone to get it. They have no humanity. And who is Jonah called to? Their capital city? Oh, no. You see, it's what we could call a perverted sense of patriotism. He's loyal to the Jews. And if he's going to be loyal to the Jews, he's going to have to deny God to be loyal to the Jews. And that's what we actually see. So Jonah 3, this is near the end of Jonah. Now listen to what Jonah says. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them. This is unto Nineveh. And he did it not. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. Now what? You know, the, the prophet with the greatest conversion rate ever in the history of the Bible is Jonah. A minimum of 120,000. The reason I say that is because we know that there's at least 120,000 in the city that don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, which could be talking about children. 
Yes, it could mean all of Nineveh does not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. However, it was a rather intelligent culture, even though it was foolish. And so it's possible that just the children were numbered at 120,000. So God literally, the whole nation repents. The whole nation, a minimum of 120,000 people. If you had that type of a revival, you'd think you'd be excited. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God. He knows God is gracious, and he knows he's going to do something like that. He's going to forgive. He's going to be merciful. Oh, For thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repents thee of the evil. He knows it. He knows it. And he does not want that mercy extended to them. So as we go through this, I want to make sure you know your position. Because you've been harmed in your life. There have been things that have been done to you. And do you know God's nature? Yeah, you know he'd forgive that person that harmed you. So what do you do? You withhold forgiveness. You remain recalcitrant. You remain hardened. It's almost your way of offsetting God. Because, yeah, God would forgive that, and you're afraid of that exact thing. Do not be a Jonah. You see, God's spirit will reach that person. However, he chooses to use you, that you would be in agreement. And that's part of where this message goes. You see, the Israelites were not in agreement. And they stunted the work of grace when the truth came and that river of living waters was poured out. They damned it up. And they did not want the world to hear of it. And they even said that Jesus' body was robbed from the grave. They passed the rumor around. They wanted this quell. They did not want this grace going into all the nations. Key number four. But the specially built human vehicle, the Israelite nation, resists. And knowingly departs from the presence of God. Who would ever choose to depart from the presence of God? Jonah did. Jonah actually deliberately chose, knowing he was departing from the presence of God because of his perverted patriotism, to save Israel, to not allow God to be merciful. He literally buys a ticket to the most opposite end of the world that he could go to, Tarshish. He's like, I'm headed this way. He knowingly... He, this, he resists and knowingly departs from the presence of God in order to preserve a twisted patriotism. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Not the best direction to go in, by the way. You see, as you are struggling in your own life with these very attributes of God, that God is marked by a grace, he is marked by a mercy, he is slow to anger, and he repents of any evil that would be coming upon you because he desires to see repentance. He desires to see a softness. And if it is offered, he is quick to respond with mercy. And you know that about him. And if you've been harmed, in the human sense, you're just as vulnerable as Jonah. A twisted patriotism. But to who? To you. To your rights, to your agenda, or maybe your family. Maybe your friends that have been harmed, a second offense or a second party offense is oftentimes more dangerous than a first party offense. However, what we see is a very dangerous thing taking place in Jonah's life. He is literally, literally purposely departing from the presence of God because he is afraid of that mercy being extended to his arch enemy. Key number five, God hijacks a special heaven-built vehicle known as Israel. And what I love about this is here we have the nation of Israel that is starting to go wayward in its own direction. And what does God do? 
He still literally hijacks this nation that is his. He built it. And he enters into it and is born as a baby. And he grows up in the very system that he created. Just like in Jonah. Jonah's asleep in the hull of a boat. There's a storm out there. And what does God do? Somehow he reveals his gospel in and through this hardened guy that is left and departed from the presence of God. He takes Israel that has gone away from him, even wants to crucify the Son of God when he comes. And what does God do? In and through their evil, he reveals his goodness. How does he do that? The sign of Jonah. Out of a hardened people, he shows forth his mercy. That is extraordinary. So, and despite the rebellion and twisted patriotism of Jonah, he, in the midst of its rebellion, calms the storm by allowing himself to be thrown overboard into the sea. He becomes an Israelite. He becomes one. He becomes a Jonah. And he is thrown into the sea. He dies. And the calm of the storm <laughs> calms. That which stands against the Gentiles <laughs> is calmed. Peace comes. Jonah 1, but the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then said they unto him, what shall we do unto thee? They're speaking unto Jonah. That the sea may be calm unto us, for the sea wrought, and it was tempestuous. And he said unto them, take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. We have a picture of the Messiah here. That which comes out of the human-built vehicle that God has, specially crafted through history to reveal his glory, to reveal his mercy, to reveal his kindnesses. And yet this vehicle known as Jonah is rebellious, and yet still God grabs a hold of it and reveals the gospel, reveals the cross in and through this man. So key number six, God's mercy will reach the Gentiles through his special heaven-built vehicle. It's sort of like Israel. You can go any way you want, but you're mine. And you will reveal my goodness and my mercy. No, we won't. We will not go in that direction. Oh, yes, you will. And so in and through the person of Jesus Christ, God reveals unto the Gentiles his mercy, even though the Jews were... They're the ones that killed them. They're trying to snuff it out. Don't let this truth be known. Don't let this mercy go widespread. Do not let it get airborne. God's mercy will reach the Gentiles through this special heaven-built vehicle. And though Israel is stiff-necked and rebellious, unwilling to acknowledge that God would choose to show his mercy to the Gentiles, God nonetheless, through Israel, will indeed show his mercy. So God prepares a man, an Israelite, and he also prepares a fish, a great big fish. The means of redemption are in position and ready. See, most of us don't think that those are means of redemption. A fish? What does this have to do with the gospel? This is such an intriguing story. Everything about this is so utterly fascinating and yet profound. Now, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Now, if you study the word fish, it just means fish. There's nothing there. All, all we know is that it's a great fish. It's a big fish. So some people say, oh, it was a white shark. Well, I don't know what it was. Obviously, it has a big enough mouth to get Jonah into it and a big enough belly for him to linger there. However, we don't know what it is, so some people call it a sea creature. Well, it could be. It doesn't say that. It just says a great fish, which could mean a sea creature. So if you want to use the imagination of sort of a dinosaur-like creature that's in the water that is one of these huge things, what is it, a megalodon or something? 
Well, then you can, you can think that it's just as right as a whale. There's nothing special about it being a whale. It's just people are trying to think of something big. This is big. And God prepared it. God prepared a vehicle through which to reveal something to the Gentiles. It's called the sign of Jonah. And everything is in place. He prepared this fish. This fish didn't just emerge out of nowhere at that exact time. It had been prepared just for the day. And guess where it happened to be swimming at that exact time? It's like, huh. Isn't Tarshish this way? It's like there's some good fish out there I'm going to eat. It's heading out that way. That fish is in the exact spot it needs to be. And then why it's rerouted to the exact spot that Jonah gets dropped off, who's in control? God is. God will be revealed through Israel. So now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You see, there's a sign, and you can say, well, who's the sign for? The sign of Jonah. You know what the sign of Jonah isn't just for us? You know what the, there was a sign of Jonah back then. And we're just about to understand what it is. But it, the sign of Jonah was given unto the Gentiles, and they believed. So when we see the sign of Jonah, what should our response be? We believe. Key number seven, something is accomplished inside this fish. Now, this is a debatable topic, okay? And I'm not really wanting to make, you know, focus on any of the debatable attributes of Jonah. Jonah is just a hard book to deal with. There's all sorts of facets in it that are like, well, that's a strange thing. So some people will say, you know, that this whole fish thing is ridiculous because they know no fish that could actually hold someone in the belly. No fish has ever swallowed a man. Well, that's actually not true. Evidence has shown that men have been swallowed up by fish and spit back out. It actually has happened. But doesn't matter. If it's never happened in all of history, why would it matter? I don't know how many other people have been formed out of ribs and turned into women either. It doesn't mean I don't believe it. <laughs> so something is accomplished inside this fish. You know that if you read the, and I'm going to read it for you, but Jesus died, okay? We're not just going to say that he was still living on the cross and they took him down thinking he was dead. And they lay him in the tomb, but he was still alive. Actually, he breathed his last. He was physically dead. Well, did you know that an argument could be made that jo Jonah didn't just hang out in the whale or the, bell, the, belly, the belly of the great fish, but that he died and that he resurrected? I mean, I'm just saying it's just as reasonable as the opposite that he just hung out there and played cards the whole time. Okay? A death, a burial, and finally a resurrection. And I'll read the scripture so that you can... I'm saying it doesn't matter. You don't have to come to that conclusion. However, he's, Jesus is showing the sign of Jonah. So what is the sign of Jonah? So the vehicle is made ready to do that which the word of the Lord commands. You see, God is over the winds and the waves. God is over that great fish. God is over Israel. And they will do as he commands. His purposes will be gained in this. The sign of Jonah is prepared. Jonah 2, and said, I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord. So Jonah has just been swallowed. And he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I. That's Sheol. That's the place of departed souls. And thou heard my voice, for thou hadst cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought me up, up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Doesn't that sound similar to the work of Jesus Christ? Isn't it a fascinating thought to think that we might be getting a glimpse into understanding what happened with Jesus when he died? 
that his life was spared from corruption. He's been brought up from corruption. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Now listen to this. Salvation is of the Lord. This is his big statement. Salvation is of the Lord. Do you know what that word salvation is? Yeshua. You know what the word for Jesus is? Yeshua. Yeshua Yahweh is what that says in the Hebrew. Yeshua, Jesus is Jehovah. That's basically what it could mean. It's not saying that, and the Hebrew would miss it. They wouldn't see that. They would, they would read salvation is of the Lord. And yet, a Christian, what is Jonah saying? Jesus! Salvation! Yahweh, Yahweh has brought salvation. He has conquered death. And the Lord spoke unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. So there's this declaration of Jehovah. It's even the very name of Jesus. Jesus is given that name right there. And the Lord spoke unto the fish. So who's in control of the fish? God. And it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. And now, he ate the squeezing of the grapes in Gath Heifer, the wine press of the fish's belly, that which was crushed, the crushing of this prophet took place in that belly. He was broken, if you will. And that which was needed to be gained was gained. And it has opened up the gate for the floodwaters of mercy to overwhelm the nation of the barbaric Gentiles. You see, the sign of Jonah has been wrought. It's actually been done. Jonah doesn't know what he's carrying. He's just spat back up. He's still not in agreement. However, God, the God who is moving Jonah, is going to accomplish his ends. Yeshua is Yahweh. He will be seen. He will be known. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So in Galilee of the nations, the people have walked in darkness, have seen a great light. So Nineveh, the darkest of cities on earth at the time, though they are walking in darkness, they've seen a great light. What was the sign of Jonah? Why did his ministry have such an effect? Never in all of history has a prophet spoke and had this kind of effect. What was it? What happened in Nineveh? These people have no interest in God whatsoever. What happened? Why was it that when Jonah, the guy who didn't even want to be there, stands one day's journey? It's a, it's a city of three days' journey. I don't know exactly if that means three days across, three days around. It's a big city. And he's one day into the city, standing on the street, and he proclaims something. And literally everyone is cut to the heart. The king puts on sackcloth humbles himself in dust and ashes. The entire nation is calls for a fast and repentance that God would turn and show mercy upon them. Whoa, what did Jonah do? It wasn't necessarily something Jonah did. It's something God did. Nineveh, you know what Nineveh means? In the Hebrew, the word nun is N-U-N, and it's typically an N sound, like an N sound. Well, that means like seed, or it means air. It's that which comes forth, but it also means fish, which is really strange. I mean, it's, it seems like a funny meaning for a word that means seed. It means fish. It does. It means fish. And so Nineveh, it's like Nuneveh. And so it actually means the house of the fish. Doesn't that sounds strange. Or fish within the house. <laughs> There's a fish within the house. Or Ishtar within the house. Ishtar was the goddess that ruled over Nineveh. They lived in fear of this goddess. 
and she was the one that was in the house. She is one of the ultimate pictures of fleshly indulgence. She would be the goddess of sexuality and love and war. And that's what Nineveh was. You see, they had something in their house that they were subservient to. And for whatever reason, in their city, there was this concept of a fish. A fish in the house. I, I didn't come up with this. I'm just saying this is what it means. A fish in the house. And I could try and dot I's, cross T's that I really probably shouldn't. However, there's something about a fish in this city. And a fish is in the house. You know what fish is similar to? Flesh. Isn't that funny? What's in our house? Flesh. And we're being controlled by something. So are they. They were being controlled by their appetite. They were being controlled by an insatiable hunger for self. And it was a drive to satisfy craving. Well, that was the entire nation. And so what we have is it's located on the eastern bank of the Tigris River. Now, I don't know how and where Jonah was spat up. People have all their speculations. And I don't know if the, the fish made it down the Tigris somehow and then went, you know, right up there on the shore. And all these Ninevites are looking out going, what in the world? Because it could be the legendary fish, the sea creature that they're all fearful of. It's like, oh, you never go into that river because the creature will get you. I don't know. All I'm saying is somehow they knew. Somehow the Ninevites understood the connection. There was a sign given them. They understood that somehow that which controlled them was under the authority of what this man had. That which they served was actually a servant to this man and his God. They saw it, they heard it, and when he spoke, he had credibility. How could a Jew ever have credibility in Nineveh? Especially one from Galilee, with his guttural noises that he makes. He's not the sort of man you would ever heed, and yet all Nineveh repented. Ishtar, the goddess of war, love, fertility, and sexuality. Well, welcome to the life controlled by sin. Ishtar is just a great way to describe it. And this is what this city was devoted to. This is what their temples were devoted to. This is what our temple as an American culture is devoted to. Now, we don't call it Ishtar. That isn't our terminology for it. In the church, we just call it the flesh. It is that which we are subservient to. It's the principle of sin within our life. And we are under its thumb. A house ruled by the flesh, or I mean the fish. That's with Nineveh. Isn't that a fascinating thought? So we are a house ruled by the flesh, and they were a house ruled by the fish. What message might they hear that would lead them to repentance? Well, they need to hear the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? The fish is subservient. Isn't that an amazing thought? What was demonstrated? The fish is subservient. The fish is at the command of God. The fish doesn't rule that God that is greater than the fish. God's greater. Did you see that? That fish is at the, at the command of God. God is over the fish. God is over the flesh. God has defeated your greatest arch enemy. The flesh, sin, darkness, death. The grave has been overcome. You have nothing to fear. That which opposes you and, can, and hinders you from being able to live the life that you've been called to live has been defeated. Calling the son of Jonah. You know, what is, it's interesting. We get, bring up fish. Now let's go to Galilee. 
Who does Jesus call on? Fishermen. Isn't that strange? And it just happens to be the son of Jonah. It's like Jonah's like, I don't hear that. He's like in the grave going, oh, you're mocking me, aren't you, God? Fish. And he's a fisher of men. This is his career. This is his life. Peter, James, John, Andrew, fishermen from Galilee, of all places, calling the son of Jonah. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Well, that's, that's our, our good buddy Peter. He, we just, he just hasn't become a main character yet. But he's being introduced. He's washing his nets, and he has a boat. What is he? He's a fisherman. He's a fisherman from Galilee. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little, a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. What's Jesus demonstrate unto the son of Jonah? He shows him a sign. What's the sign? I rule over the fish. I mean, it's just sort of a fascinating statement. I'm just making a comment here because that's exactly what he does. And then he says, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Remember, his name is Simon. He hears and accepts. And so he hears and accepts, and he lets down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Isn't that interesting? You show authority over the fish. And suddenly he says, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. It brought him to repentance. What a strange reaction. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. Isn't that an interesting statement? That which you've always been subservient to, your career. They left it. Their career of catching fish. Their business was working with fish. They left it all to become fishers of men. Jonah had a higher calling. It wasn't to protect his patriotism of the Jews. It was to bear witness of God Almighty. The sign of Jonah. The prophet of Galilee has come. And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. They seek a sign. And there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. Matthew 12, but he answered and said unto them, this is Jesus talking, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. All right, I think it's in the Bible enough that we should take notice. Jesus is not going to give any other sign but the sign of Jonah. This is the sign that he gives. What is the sign of Jonah? Well, simply put, you could say, that which once ruled the house is now conquered. That which once ruled this house is defeated. Well, what ruled Nineveh? Well, you could say it, the fish is in the house. 
You could say the fear of Ishtar. You could say the control of lusts, sin is what we call it. They were controlled by sin, which was symbolized in and through a very specific thing to them. There's a language in every culture. And in this culture, that language seemed to have something to do with a fish. And when Jonah came out of the fish as a testimony that it could not defeat him, but that his God controlled the fish, it was a sign that actually moved Nineveh to repentance. What rules the house? Sin, darkness, death, the flesh, the grave. We can't save ourselves from this either. We're sunk. We are dead men walking. We have no hope. We are lost Gentiles. And I know there's probably some Jewish people in here. We're lost. We have no hope unless there is a salvation. Who does salvation belong to? It belongs to Yahweh. But he has brought it to us in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Salvation is of Jehovah. So what rules the house? Sin, darkness, death, the flesh, the grave? A celebration of Ishtar. You know what's interesting about this? This is so interesting. What day would Jonah have been spat up upon? Well, just take a guess. What day? Since there was a celebration in Nineveh called Ishtar, Easter, what day do you think Jonah was spat up on? Anyone want to hazard a guess? I have a hunch that it's known to us as the Lord's Day, as resurrection morning. Just a guess. God was defying the very high day of the goddess of that city by declaring that that which once ruled has been defeated. Jonah wasn't even in agreement with this. He didn't choose the day. God did. And yet, it's the first full moon after the spring equinox. This would have been right at the same time the Jews celebrate Passover. And every now and then, Ishtar would coincide with the Jews' Passover. The Passover day in which the perfect lamb of sacrifice is, in a sense, thrown overboard into the sea. And that which is the problem with Israel is quelled. And so we have a parallel here, and it's called the sign of Jonah. The great fish of awe. Now, I, I have no idea why they would have anything to do with a fish, why they would care about a fish, why they would be impressed with a fish. We don't probably think a lot about fish. We don't tremble before fish. We don't probably have a lot of superstitions about fish unless you start talking about sharks. Now, I don't know if along the Tigris there was some big shark that would go around. You'd see this fin out of the water, and they'd go, <gasps> and so everyone was always afraid, and they had legends there, you know, of if you get near the water, he'll bite your foot off, you know, type of thing. However, all we know is that somehow they heard the message. So we could write a story about it. We could write a movie script about it and probably make some stuff up. We don't know. What we do know is that somehow when the sign of Jonah was given, they heard it. He conquered it. The grave spat him out. It could not hold him. It is subservient to him. The fish is under his feet. So we see in Hosea a foreshadow of this, a foreshadow of the Messiah. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. Well, how could you say it in Nineveh? I will ransom you from the power of Ishtar. I will ransom you from the power of the fish. I will redeem them from death. O oh, death, I will be thy plagues. O oh, grave, I will be thy destruction. What a statement. Salvation belongs to our God. He's our rescuer. 
We cannot overcome it. We are trapped in our sin. We are trapped in our fleshly indulgence. We are under the thumb of Ishtar. We are, whether we call it that or not, that has ruled over us. And ironically, it has continued to rule over the church because we have not looked at the sign of Jonah and believed. That is under his feet. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's time to leave the fishing docks of Galilee. I want you to be a fisher of men in Nineveh. I want you to go where I call you. Could you imagine what that would be like? It's really hard for us to stick ourselves in Jonah's shoes. And yet, it's hard for us to realize our calling as well. You know, there's that person that stabbed you in the back. They've undermined your life. They've harmed you in some great way. Could you imagine? And you're laboring over here, doing your work in Galilee. And God says, would you follow me? Like, well, where are you going? Well, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Well, that sounds nice. And this is where I want you to start. It's that one guy... That one girl that has no business hearing the mercy of God. And yet, where does God start? He says, this is where we start. You see, if we don't start with our Nineveh, we're not prepared to bear witness to the nations. This is our stumbling block, and it's a stumbling block for Israel. May it not be the stumbling block for us as the church. May we allow the God who has done it truly to be a minister of his mercy unto the nations through us, starting with our Nineveh. So each of you can name your own Nineveh in your soul and you can ask the question, are you going to pull a Jonah or are you going to be an agreeable vessel? The book of Jonah, its ending is quite odd. I'm going to read the ending for you, by the way. And God said to Jonah, doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? He's waiting outside the city to see the destruction of Nineveh. And he's concerned that God's going to show mercy. And guess what God does? Eh, he shows mercy. Jonah's not happy about this. So he, God, Jonah, while he's sitting there, is in the hot sun. And God grows up this gourd. It's a very strange story. This gourd which gives him shade. And Jonah, for some reason, has a tremendous interest in this gourd. And he just loves this gourd. The whole story is, is awkward. And, but God, in the next day, sends a worm, and, which destroys the gourd. So it comes in one day, and it's destroyed in one day. And so God said to Jonah, doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry. Uh, not the proper response to God. And yet, this is oftentimes the state of our soul. I do well to be angry. He's self-justified. Everything about him, he thinks he's smarter than God. He thinks he's better than God in a strange way. He's figured it all out. God's the one that built Israel. God's the protector of Israel. And yet Jonah feels obligated to be the protector. And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. Then said the Lord, thou hast had pity on the gourd for the which thou hast not labored. Neither made it to grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than 120,000 persons that cannot discern their, between their right hand and their left? And also much cattle. Boom, the end of Jonah, right there. Aren't you expecting something else? It's like you're playing a song and in the middle of the song you just stop. It's like, yeah, that's it. You're like, well, isn't there like a final word to it at least? Like, and this is the message of Jonah. At least something. That's where it stops. 
There's no answer from Jonah. I don't think it's an accident. I think it's an ellipsis. In the Bible, the sign of Jonah is going to come. And yet the Israelites are not the ones that are fit to bring it. God will bring it. God is the one that brings it. And what does he choose as his instrument to reveal his mercy? Those that believe in the Son. It's known as the church. The church is the vehicle. You know that Peter is an Israelite? He is. I'm not saying anything about Israelites. The church was built out of them. However, it's called the church of Jesus Christ, which is both Jew and Gentile. It's not one or the other. And it's a, a vehicle that God chose to reveal himself to the world. That's the finishing statement. There's an ellipsis. We hear from the Jews the folded arms and the resistance. And in comes Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all Israel. The unfinished book. The Jews stand resolute in defiance of God's mercy, willing to part from the presence in order to ensure that the mercies of God do not extend to the Gentiles. But God's mercies cannot be hindered. If Jonah refuses, God will raise up a son of Jonah. Isn't that amazing what he built his church upon? How he constructed his church, he chooses a son of Jonah? Isn't that an, I don't know if you guys appreciate the irony and God's sense of humor in all of these things. Matthew 16, when Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But who say you that I am? And Simon Peter, the one who answers this question, answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He recognizes him. A man in Israel sees it. He's the son of Jonah, and now he sees it. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah. He actually uses his full name, which means son of Jonah. Jesus chooses to even articulate it that way. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, of all the people to mention in a situation like this. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, I'm not one to say that the church was built upon Peter. I would say it's built upon the truth and the fact that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And the Spirit of God is the one who's revealed that to us. It's Amate and the dove. It's the truth and the dove. And that is the building block, the foundation for the Peter, for the rock. And so... That thou art Peter, and upon this rock, upon this very established fact that you have esteemed the truth, you have heeded it as Simon, you have received it, and now you have accepted it into your life, the Spirit of God has revealed it, it has sealed it in your life, you are now made strong as my messenger to reveal to the nations my mercy, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The pursuit of grace. Think about God in this situation. God, why would he even care about Nineveh? Well, why would he care about us? I mean, it actually should be very encouraging to us because Nineveh was really, really bad. And yet God pursued it. God wanted to extend mercies to Nineveh. The pursuit of grace. Listen to this. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. How many of us have rejected it the first time? But we'll call this the second time. You're Nineveh, whoever it is, whatever it is. God says, are you willing to be my minister of mercy? 
Are you willing to extend my grace unto them? Are you willing to be the church of Jesus Christ, the way I have commissioned the church to function, which is a free-flowing vessel through which my love can be expressed? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach it to, to it the message that I tell you. Isn't it amazing that God gave Jonah even a second opportunity? Why would he do that? He's God. By the way, that's after the belly. You see, you've seen the sign. You've been awakened to the realities of who Jesus Christ is. And sometimes he needs to bring that sign right back to us afresh and say, will you go? Will you be my minister of mercy? So remember, I'm calling this the pursuit of grace. God is pursuing us. He's even pursuing Jonah in this story. But he's also pursuing Nineveh. But then he's also pursuing us. He's laboring to see us become the, the vehicle that we are intended to be. So look at John 21. Peter has blown it. Eh, Jonah blew it too. So it seems like Jonah and then the one known as the son of Jonah seem to have some similarities. They tend to both be rather proud, rather stalwart in their convictions, and Peter blows it. Let's just say it that way. He denies Christ three times. When his nation is standing before him, he shrinks. And even when you see the book of Acts, you actually begin to notice that there is a pressure point in this man where he can begin to come back under the law. He's susceptible to it. He's susceptible to that national patriotism. The way that it's supposed to be. He knows that the way he's going is going to offend his brethren. And yet he still chooses to walk in it. But this is a, this is a difficult path for Peter. He's rejected, well, he didn't reject Christ in that sense. He denied Christ three times. And so here we are, we're back in Galilee. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, John, John and James, and the two others of his disciples were together. Now listen to this. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. What's he returning to? He's returning to his old patterns, his old life. Doesn't this sound familiar? Isn't this amazing to think of the long-suffering of our God towards Nineveh, also to Jonah, to Peter, <clears throat> and to us? Peter's like, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to the fish. Yeah, Peter, no. But how's Jesus going to respond? It's a beautiful portrait. I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you also. They're going back to what's familiar. Their Messiah died. I mean, what, what do you say? What, are I supposed to hang around at the tomb that's probably not going to open? I mean, what am I supposed to do? Or in this case, did open, but I mean, what am I supposed to do with my life? I, he's a prophet from Galilee. He awaits his commission. And yet he knows one thing that he's familiar with, fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, 
he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in from the little boat. Could you imagine what's going on inside of Peter? He loves Jesus, but he feels disconnected. What, what has he done? He's denied him. And yet, this is part of the love and the grace and the mercy of God. The same love and grace and mercy that he expressed to Nineveh. The same love and grace even expressed to Jonah. It's the same love and grace he expresses to us. But the other disciples came in from the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and the fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You ever felt that weakness in your own abilities? See, this is Peter prior to Pentecost. Peter is still lacking something. He knows how he's supposed to live, but there's that pull back to the fish. And Jesus afresh makes it very clear, the fish are under my control. Follow me. Do the work of a Galilean prophet. Do what you know to be doing, Peter. And yet he's missing something. And Jesus is going to lay that out for him before he ascends. And says, you need something, don't you, Peter? Yeah? In what I have, I deny you. In what I have, I return to fishing. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, Jesus. I love you, but I don't know exactly how to serve you. I want you to go to an upper room and wait, because there's something I want to give you. I'm going to give you everything you need to live this life the way I've commissioned you to live it, so that you can do not what Jonah did, but what I did. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. You know what? This is the exact opposite of possibly his great, 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 great grandfather, Jonah. We don't know when Jonah actually, uh, I know it's, he's not the son of the actual Jonah, just so you guys know that. I'm not thinking that. However, who knows? Maybe he's in the lineage of Jonah. Isn't that a fascinating thought? But this is the exact opposite. He says, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. You see, Jonah girded himself, bought his own fare to Tarshish, and went where he wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and you, another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. Peter was crucified upside down. He was going to be crucified in a normal fashion, and he actually said, I'm unworthy to be crucified as my Lord. And Peter chose a more painful death to honor Jesus Christ. That's a change in a Jonah. 
You see, that is one who has a true reverence and respect. Whatever Jesus wants, whatever God wants, I do. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Jonah, the man of double meaning. Do you know that his name means more than just dove and wine? It actually has two meanings. Dove and wine, and then it means the vexer, the troubler. Well, doesn't that sound like the Holy Spirit to you? You see, the Holy Spirit, to some of us, is a comfort. And to some of us, it's a pain in the neck. I do not want to know that sin. I do not want to know that I'm wrong. And yet the Holy Spirit has come, because he is mercy, to explain it to us. The wine under pressure. So the concept of even his name, Yonah, would be like a cask of wine with a cork in it, shaken. And it needs to come out. And if it doesn't, what happens? The whole thing bursts. You know, if you have a cork in your life, and the effervescence, that wine of God's grace and mercy is not allowed to come out, did you know that it's a vexation? It's actually a trouble to your soul, and you will be miserable? If you do not allow the Holy Spirit to love through you, to show grace through you, to forgive through you, if you do not allow it, if you keep the cork in, you become miserable like Jonah. The amazing thing about Peter, the son of Jonah, the same one who said, Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive? I mean, come on, is it seven? He thought he was really amping it up. And Jesus says to this one, the son of Jonah, 70 times seven. In other words, there is no limit. You are an instrument of my mercy. Living waters will flow out of you, Peter, so that you can show forth the mercies of God unto the nations. If the cork remains, the pressure will build and build and build. Likewise, the spirit of grace is both a dove and a vexer. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. So there's a fragrance associated with the church of Jesus Christ. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. Well, that's what the dove is. You see, the dove is either the wine of his grace and truly a minister of peace unto your soul, or it's going to drive you crazy. Depends on what relationship you have to it. If you welcome the call to Nineveh, guess what? Everything goes smoothly. But if you rebel against it and buy a fare to Tarshish, you're miserable the entire time. You're in a cauldron of difficulty. Submit. Listen and heed the Spirit of God who is calling you to be an instrument of his mercies. The madman prophet from Galilee. I'm going to give you another little peek into Jonah. Remember his dad was in the time of Elisha, or I'm sorry, Elijah and then Elisha. Well, to the Jews, there is a scene in which Jonah appears, but his name is not mentioned. So technically, I couldn't prove biblically that this was Jonah, but it is extremely fascinating. And it does work chronologically. And so the Jews would actually say that he's in this story. I'll see if you can find him. 2 Kings 9, 1 through 10, and Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets, did I emphasize that a little too much? And said to him, get yourself ready, take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. We're in a time of great crisis in Israel. Ahab has, uh, is, is, it's time for judgment, let's just put it that way. The house of Ahab is still in existence. Though Ahab has passed away, two kings have come instead. God spoke to Elijah years ago that there would be a man named Jehu that he needed to anoint as king. Jehu 
Who's Jehu? And now is the time to fulfill that prophecy. And so it's time. Elisha knows it, even though that promise was given or that command was given to Elijah all the years before. Ahab's house is still in control. Jezebel still lingers in the land of Israel. And now one of the sons of the prophets is called. And he's called to go and anoint a king. Why? For judgment. You know, Jonah doesn't mind doing this. This is a job that's straight down his alley. Now when you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not delay. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead. And when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting, and he said, I have a message for you, commander. Jehu said, For which one of us? And he said, For you, commander. Then he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the, hands of Jezebel, at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. The dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. Isn't that intriguing? A little Jonah sighting in the Old Testament? Isn't that a fascinating thought of that being Jonah? A young Jonah who has come to speak the words of judgment. Judgment on what? All that stands against God. You know what that's exactly what repentance is or the call to repentance is? You know what this is our message too? However, it's not judgment on the people of Ahab in the natural sense. God has brought judgment. He's brought judgment on sin. Death, darkness, the flesh. The grave has no more power. Do not submit to their power. For when Jehu comes in his chariot, he will trample underfoot anyone who has not humbled himself and joined his side. See, this is a call to repentance so that you would receive mercy. You see, Jonah was equipped. He understood the judgment of God. What he struggled with was the mercy of God. And so for all of us in here, we need to recognize Jehu has been crowned. He has been anointed. You know what Jehu means? He is, is. Jehovah, which means he is, is. He is, is. It's a self-existent one has come. It's Jesus. It's God Almighty who has come and he is the judge. The only one you should ever fear is Jesus Christ, the one who can condemn your soul. Satan can't condemn your soul. He can whisper about it all day long. He doesn't have the power to do it. He doesn't have the authority to do it. If you submit to the devil, you will share his destiny. But Jehu is on his chariot, and he, I guess he drove it furiously because even his driving of a chariot could be recognized miles away. And they say, that's, that's Jehu. He drives it furiously. Jesus' chariot is driving as well. And the message in the New Testament is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jehu's chariot is on its way. You see, all judgment is in his hand. And when he was on that cross, or we could say when he was in the belly of that whale, he brought low your enemy. So how in the world could you still submit to it? 
How could you still stand with an enemy kingdom and have the most treasonous act in the midst of all righteousness? You have a means of salvation, and it's Jehu. He's coming. But if you call into him now, he will extend his mercies to you. But if he arrives, it'll be too late. There are so many great stories in the story of Jehu. He literally comes up to a house, and the watchman will come out and come up to him and say, what is your business, Jehu? He says, join me. I've come for judgment. And guess what? When they join him, they fall into his train, and they are not judged. And the next guy comes out, what is your business, Jehu? He says, I've come to judge. Get behind me. And they come behind him. Anyone who's behind him is spared. Anyone who stands in front of him is trampled. He comes to the house of Jezebel, and two eunuchs stick their head out. And, and Jehu goes, who's with me in the house of Jezebel? And these eunuchs are sort of like, uh, you know how dangerous to be? You're standing next to Jezebel. It's like, I'm not with her. And so he says, throw her down. Could you imagine? It's like to turn against your flesh, to actually side against that which harms you. To say, I'm with you, Jehu. I'm with the judge. Bring me into your chair and I don't want to be under it. All right, one of my favorite stories. This is beautiful. This is profound. Climbing into the chariot of judgment. Jehu is making his way in his chariot. And guess what stands in front of him? All the house of Ahab. And he is burning with anger. And he is going to bring it down. All that stands against his name and his glory. All that has offended his person throughout the ages and generations stands there. Don't stand with it. Don't stand with it. And so in the midst of this furious chariot ride, we have this story. 2 Kings 10. Now when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab. Which, ironically, I, I should have written it the, the other way. It actually is Jonah Dab. It's actually how it's typically written. Jonah Dab. It's written two different ways in the Old Testament. Jonah Dab. Isn't that amazing? It's like the same name. It's the only time. It's, it's even next to it in the concordance. It's right next to Jonah. Jonah Dab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, and this is what Jehu says to Jehonadab, Dab. Jonah Dab. So imagine that you're there. Judgment is coming. And Jehu's chariot pulls up, and he stops, and this is what he says to you. Is your heart right as my heart is towards your heart? Well, so he's asking you that question. Is your heart right with me? My heart's right towards you. I want to save you. Is your heart right towards me? Now imagine if Jonadab says, no, my heart's not right towards you. What's going to happen to him? Well, I don't even want to think it. However, it's going to be bad. And Jonadab answered, it is. It's a picture of the kingdom of heaven and the king of all kings coming in judgment. He is coming, but the question to us now, before he arrives at Ahab's family, before he arrives at that which he must bring judgment on, there is a season of grace. Do you know what Jonadab means? Jehovah is gracious. Jehovah is grace. And Jonadab answered, it is. Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and he took him up, in, up to him into the chariot. What's your position? Yeah. And so at the day of judgment, you're in the chariot. The key with believing, when he extends his hand to you and says, is your heart right towards me the way mine is towards you? The correct answer, by the way, it is. However, some of us are like Jonah. I don't know if it is. In fact, he was willing to depart from the presence of God to hold on to his bizarre national pride. May we not stumble 
over our pride, over our self-justification, over all the things that would cause us to concern ourselves with the way God does things. I do not want him to show mercy. Well, if he doesn't show mercy to you, you have no hope. If he is not a merciful God, we're sunk. The fact that he is who he is is where our hope lies, and he cannot change. If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and he took him up to him into the chariot. Then he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. And so he had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. Will we heed the madman prophet from Galilee? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what they called uh, this son of the prophet that came to Jehu? They called him a madman. That's what they called him. Repent. He's anointed Jehu who's coming to bring judgment on all the house of Ahab. Madman. So are you going to listen to the madman and repent and get into Jehu's chariot? Or are you going to stand against him and stand with Jezebel? Doesn't sound very good when you stand with Jezebel, does it? Will we heed the madman prophet from Galilee? Jonah the dove. Jehu the judge. Jonadab, he is grace. You see... God has made it clear to us by his spirit that the judge is coming. And he's anointed him. Jesus is actually anointed by the spirit to do his judging. And Jonadab is still in between here and the judgment on Ahab. And he is grace. And his hand is extended to every single one of us. And he says, get in the chariot. His hand is extended to us. It's an amazing picture of how God works. The Holy Spirit has laid before us mercy and judgment. You pick. Do you want to be in the chariot or do you want to be under its wheels? There's only two options, but you will have to reckon with Jehu. Jehu is coming. Is he to you a dove or a vexer? It's a good question. Some of us look at the story of Jehu and are offended. Oh, it's not my God. He wouldn't bring judgment. Oh, yes, he will. You do not define God. God defines God, and he will judge sin. He is righteousness, and the wrath of God is upon the ungodly. However, he is love, and his cross is the epitome and the expression of it, and it is a symbol of that hand extended to us. It is that hand extended to Nineveh who does not deserve it, and God is gracious. God is the one who desires to save. Will you receive that hand? Will you take it and enter into his chariot? Is he to you a dove? or a vexer. You know, when you are in the chariot, the angle on the scene of judgment is completely different than when you are under its wheels. The lineage of the church, this is just a review, Amate, the truth comes. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the work of the cross is revealed to us. Shimon, the son of Jonah, we hear with acceptance, and we become rock-like, hard and unyielding, immovable and strong in the truth. Hard and unyielding towards sin, immovable and strong in faith. The sign of Jonah, that which opposed and oppressed, your soul is defeated. He has come into the house to rule. Are we Jonah's or Simon Peter's? Simon Peter and Jonah both are flawed men. And so are we. You see, there's another character in the story named Jesus, and he has no flaw, but we can relate more to Jonah and to Peter. Isn't it amazing that God gives us these symbols in Scripture so that we can understand even ourselves? 
Because we can easily be the recalcitrant. We can easily be the hard-hearted. We can easily be the self-justified. You have a Nineveh in your life. And I want you to deliberately this day choose to turn to the Spirit of God, the Spirit of mercy and grace, and say, God, I, I can't love Nineveh. I don't have it in me. It's not in my pockets. But you can through me. And I'm scared that you'll express your grace to them. I'm scared that you're going to express your mercy and kindnesses to them. But I don't want to be. I want to be like you towards everyone in this earth. I want to be you. I want to stick my hand out. I want to have a right heart towards those you have a right heart towards. God, what's wrong with me? Who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are not going to be anything but Jonah's without the grace of God. What Jonah needed was the cross. What Jonah needed was Jesus. What Jonah needed is the same thing you have access to, and that is the spirit of grace. The river that was opened up in the side of Jesus that flowed from the wine press on the hill. And that is now the floodgates have been opened and has entered into all the earth. The prophet from Galilee has come. And he has shown forth the sign of Jonah so that we would be saved from being Jonah's. So that we could be Peter's. So that we could be the church of Jesus Christ, rock-like towards sin and also rock-like in our faith. So that in and out of this rock will flow rivers of living water unto the nations. And a spring will gush forth out of this strength. And we can be ministers of his very mercies. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you do have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.